John chapter 12. Let's pick it up in verse 12. We already covered the first 11 verses. On the next day, so now we're five days before the Passover, seeing as the first 11 verses happened six days before the Passover. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming and seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified... Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him up from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good? I love that. The Pharisees are saying that to each other. You're no good. Well, you're no good. Well, you're no good either. Yeah, well, look who's talking, Mr. No Good. You see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. All four evangelists tell this story. The triumphal entry in Latin, the triumphus. You know, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And we get different angles, different perspectives of the same story. How the donkey and the, and the young colt were found and brought to Jesus. They weren't just found. Jesus had told the disciples to go get them. The Lord is in need of these. You may remember the uh, synoptic gospels describing that. And they bring the donkey to Jesus. John's not concerned with focusing so much on how the donkey got there. As much as the fact that this is happening. This entry into Jerusalem, this is a big deal. And this was a Jerusalem-rattling event. Now Luke is the only one of the four Gospel writers who omits the cry of Hosanna. Possibly because of his largely Greek audience, Hosanna being a very Hebrew thing to say, very Hebrew phrase. But all four writers tie into the Hebrew prophecy behind this event. Matthew chapter 21 verse 9 says the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting Hosanna to the son of David, a messianic title. The son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Mark chapter 11 verses 9 and 10, Mark wrote, those who went in front and those who followed were shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest, the kingdom of David, which belongs to Messiah. So again, a messianic uh, cheer going up from the crowd. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So again, all four Gospels, anytime you see all four of them focusing on a single event, you know this is one God does not want you to miss. Frankly, if it's in the Bible, God doesn't want you to miss it. But there is an an extra special emphasis here as Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. What a day! 
What a moment. Hosanna, Yashana in the Hebrew. Yasha, which is the Hebrew root word for Jesus, Yeshua. Yashana, which translated means we cry out, Savior, or we beseech you, save us. Hosanna. And there are three primary prophetic links to this event. If we look back in the Hebrew Scriptures, you can jot these down, three links. The first one is what we might call the prophecy of the Psalm of Triumph. The prophecy of the Psalm of Triumph, Psalm 118, verse 22, which reads, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Did you hear it? Yeshana. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Yeshana. And then, Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he, or blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So as the people are calling these things out and crying out, they are singing the psalm of triumph. In that prophetic moment, they're singing exactly what had been written a thousand years before. The second prophetic link. What we might call the prophecy of perfect timing. You see, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey landed squarely on God's prophetic time. On his schedule. In Daniel chapter 9, literally verse 25. Now Daniel 9, 24 through 26 in there is the significant prophecy. But that verse specifically, the angel Gabriel. (laughs) The angel that shares your name. He decrees a divinely calculated day. He tells Daniel this day is going to come and it would come 483 years hence. From the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there's only one decree like that from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. From that decree until Messiah the Prince. And he gives the exact accounting of time. And on that precise day, here comes Jesus. Riding in on the donkey. The second prophetic indicator, the prophecy of perfect timing. The psalm of triumph is sung by the unrehearsed crowds. They hadn't gotten together the choir and practiced. It's just it's what came out of their hearts. With the perfect timing of the Lord and the third prophetic indicator, what I would call the prophecy of the peaceful trot. That was for you, Debbie. The prophecy of the peaceful trot. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is now the fourth time going through the Gospels. We've looked closely at this story. And you know if you've heard any of the teaching before or you've read the story, that for a king to ride on a donkey's colt meant it was a time of peace. If he was riding on a stallion, it would be a time for war, a time for charging, a time for leading the armies, as Jesus will do in His second coming. But here, claiming this royal uh, kingship in His first coming, claiming His rightful place over Israel as their Messiah King, He's riding the donkey. It is a peaceful trot. He comes bringing peace. He is the Prince of Peace. 
He comes offering salvation. And mark this, my friends, had they fully received Jesus as Lord and Savior, it would have happened in that day. But God knew more needed to be done. That He knew that for true peace to come, blood had to be spilled. Or we would never get there. So Jesus entered Jerusalem to the thunderous applause of the crowds. But it wasn't the only thunder that would be heard that day. Very interesting thunder would roll in the heavens. We'll get there in a few minutes. But before we go on, one more thing to notice just about this triumphal entry. And that is what's said by John in verse 16. Look at it again. These things His disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of Him and that they had done these things to Him. Get this. When Jesus is glorified, life gets clarified. When Jesus is glorified, life gets clarified. See, the disciples, they didn't understand. They didn't fully embrace what was going on. I mean, they were shouting too. They were saying, Hosanna. They were into the party and the parade. They had the palm branches. They were like, yeah, this is the time. But they didn't get it. They didn't fully understand or comprehend what was taking place before their very eyes until, John writes, He was glorified. Then, all of a sudden, it all came rushing in. It all made sense. All of the prophecy, all of the teaching of Jesus, all of the miracles, all of the nature and character of who He is, it came flooding in, and then they got it. Then they understood. You know why we don't understand sometimes what's going on in our lives? Jesus is not glorified. We're focused on ourselves. We're trying to work it out. We think we're either too good or we're too bad for help. Rather than simply glorifying Jesus, best thing you can do when you are messed up is worship. The best way to get a sense of understanding about life and what's happening around you is worship. Glorify Jesus, everything else falls into place. When Jesus is glorified, life gets clarified. Why is it that so many people walk around muddled in this world? Because Jesus is not glorified. And we've seen this time and time again Sunday with the Judas conundrum. We're talking about the whole choice of Judas. And Jesus' choice does not make sense until He's glorified. When we look at the nature, when we look at the character of Jesus, when we worship and praise and glorify Jesus, suddenly it makes perfect sense that He would not choose Judas for destruction, but would choose Judas to be as close to Him as possible to have every opportunity to choose Jesus. But that doesn't come until we glorify Him and start looking at who He is. It didn't come for me. And that was such a a fascinating, I don't know, experience that God took me through last week. In truly praying through and seeking to understand why the choice of Judas and having conversation with God about it and I was confused and I was in a conundrum. When I wrote the title of that teaching, the Judas conundrum, the conundrum was mine. I wasn't getting it. And I heard a very simple sentence, I believe from the Lord, when He said, look at Jesus. Stop looking at Judas and look at Jesus. And the moment I did that, 
just as John writes, suddenly these things, I didn't understand at first. But when he was glorified, oh, I get it. And it's the same thing in our lives, gang. If we, if we lift up ourselves, we're going to stay muddled. Or if we despair in ourselves, we will remain confused. But when Jesus is glorified, life gets clarified. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 11, To this end also, we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that, Paul writes, the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. See, that's the key. The worship of Jesus, the glorification of Jesus in our lives. It's not just about singing a few worship songs. It's not just showing up to church. It is about life and perspective and clarity and understanding. It's about lifting the very veil that still remains over Israel. We'll get there in a few minutes. The glory of Jesus opens our eyes and explains life to us. And makes things understandable. When Jesus is glorified, life gets clarified. For God, 1 Corinthians 14.33, is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Why is there ever confusion in the churches? It happens when Jesus is not glorified. So He comes into Jerusalem. It looked to the Pharisees like the whole world had gone after Him. And in that moment, it must have been impressive. And the whole world was coming after Him. Verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask of Him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's the right question. Can we see Jesus? We want to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now that's an interesting process. The Greeks, they go to Philip. And Philip, he goes to Andrew. And they have a little colloquium there, a little conversation. And then the two of them decide together then to go on to Jesus. Why in the first place do the Greeks go to Philip? Well... Philip's a Greek name. So perhaps, you know, they caught on to that. They heard that he was one of Jesus' followers and they thought, well, he's our best in because at least he's got a Greek name. Though Philip was Jewish. But there's more to this. The the court of the Gentiles, which is as far as these Greeks could go. And by the way, let me insert something here. John doesn't talk about right here. He talks about another event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the clearing of the temple. Remember back in John chapter 2, Jesus came in and He cleared the temple at the start of His ministry. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already told us that He also does it at the end of His ministry. And I've shared with you before, like bookends of His ministry, Jesus begins by clearing the temple and He ends by clearing the temple because my Father's house is a house of prayer. So He has just done that The Greeks who come to see, they want to see Jesus, may have, perhaps, possibly, likely, were there. 
Noticing all of the filth and the falderall and the financial things going on, the people getting ripped off and the animals being sold in the court of the Gentiles. After all, they're just Gentiles, right? We can do it out there. We can sell the animals with the Gentile dogs. And Jesus clears it out. Now, if I was one of the Greeks standing there, I'd be like, dude, I want to meet that guy. He is a rock star and I want to get his autograph. So they're in the court of the Gentiles, but that was as far as they could go being Greeks. Bible students, see if you remember, where did Jesus do most of His teaching in the temple complex? Was it in the court of the Gentiles? It was in the court of the women, into which the Gentiles could not go. So Jesus was probably, after having cleared the temple, He's probably now moved on into the court of the women, and He's got disciples around, and He's teaching there in the court of women, while outside, here are these Greeks going, man, I'd love to get closer, but you know, we can't pass the barrier. There was a three-foot dividing wall in the temple complex between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. Just three feet high. You could look right over it. You could watch and see what was going on, but you could not pass that wall. There were plaques every ten feet along this wall that basically warned death to any non-Jew who passed by that wall. This is as close as you get. So here are the Greeks, having just seen this marvelous clearing of the temple, standing there looking around going, we want to meet Jesus. We can't get in there. Maybe, I don't know, Philip came out to get some popcorn or something and they catch him there. Hey, can you introduce us to Jesus? Sir, we want to see Jesus. So there's Philip. By the way, I wonder if that three-foot dividing wall is what Paul had in mind when he wrote in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile alike, both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So the Greeks go to Philip who, again, they must have found outside the women's court. Why doesn't Philip just go on in and get Jesus? Why does he go now to Andrew? Bible students, do you recall, Jesus set very clear boundaries for the scope of His first coming ministry. Philip wasn't sure he could take the Greeks right to Jesus. Because Jesus had said in Matthew 10, verse 5, the 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, He said, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Philip comes to Andrew and says, What do you think, Drew? Do we go and get Jesus or not? I mean, because He told us don't go to the Gentiles. Only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And truly, note that, That was Jesus' first and primary concern. His people. Not that He wasn't concerned for the Gentiles, but it was through the promises and it was through the prophets and it was through the Jewish people that He came. So it was to the Jewish people that He first came. So it makes sense to me that that Philip would go get Andrew and go, look dude, they want it. But He said, what do you think? So since there's strength in numbers, now we have Philip and Andrew, and they want to take these to Jesus. But again, I love what the Greeks said. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It was the request of the ages. We wish to see Jesus too. 
Most of us here tonight would have been standing outside the dividing wall looking in. I can so relate to these Greeks. I even like their food. I would have been one of the ones standing out there going, I want to meet him. But I'm a non-Jew. I can't go in there. But I saw what he did. And I've heard what he did. And I want to meet Jesus. And that's all it takes. We wish to see Jesus. That's all it takes. That's all you got to say. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Opa, that's good news! For the non-Jew. For the Greek. It's worth dancing about. Well, verse 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, okay, what changed? Why in this moment does Jesus say the hour has come? Because before, you may recall John chapter 2 verse 4, He said, my hour has not yet come. He said that to His mother at at the wedding in Cana. Woman, it's not my hour, it's not my time. John chapter 7, verse 6, he says to his brothers, My time is not yet here. And we've seen how intentional and purposeful Jesus is throughout the Gospel of John. Well now, all of a sudden now, in this moment, in this precise moment, by the way, Jesus says, The hour has come. What's changed? And what's it got to do with these Greeks? The arrival of these curious Gentiles signaled something about to get underway, something that Jesus here recognizes, and it's the reason He says what He says right then, right there. He is recognizing the times of the Gentiles. Because now the Greeks are coming. Now the Gentiles are saying, we wish to see Jesus, and Jesus says, time is here. The times of the Gentiles. Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jesus referred to the very age that we are living in as the times of the Gentiles. So what is the one singular event that opens up that age, this age in which we live in? What was the thing that that basically kicked off the times of the Gentiles? Listen, it is the falling to the ground of a fruit-bearing seed. It's the death of Jesus. It's the rejection of Jesus by Israel proper. It's the dying of Jesus. And so the very next thing he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jew and Gentile. I gotta die. And now the time is here, and and I believe what set it off, what Jesus, the reason He said that right there is because here come the Gentiles saying we want to see Jesus too. Second thing to note here, uh, when Jesus was crucified, salvation was multiplied. What was the first thing to note, Rick? When Jesus is glorified, life gets clarified. But now, when Jesus was crucified, salvation was multiplied. What was originally an offer to Israel. Now, it was always God's intention to call the whole world. But He invited Israel to do it first. 
And when they didn't, He sent Himself as a Son of Israel to be the light of the world and to offer salvation. When He was crucified, salvation was multiplied. It's like taking seed and scattering it across the entire world. The message of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is the very kernel of our message. It's the grain head of the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. So note that both Jew and Gentile were going to miss it. And some still do, Jew and Gentile today, to one a stumbling block, to the other foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you, but Christ in Him crucified. It's the very heart and soul of the Gospel message. Our message. And these Gentiles, these curious Greeks who want to see Jesus, they're the poster children of worldwide evangelism. Of the worldwide harvest, which Jesus now goes on to explain in verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Don't miss this. Verses 25 and 26 sum up the call and response of the church age. And it just, I mean, this is, I read Jesus and I listen to him teach. And I'm so stirred up because I've told you, I think, before as a kid, and like many of us, you read across this stuff and go, well, that's esoteric. (laughs) I don't know what that means. The Greeks just wanted to see Jesus, and he's talking about grains of wheat. What is that? But he is so amazing. He is the matchless rabbi. He is the great teacher. And he walks us through in these verses. First, that the hours come, times of the Gentiles. Second, let me explain what's going to kick it off. The grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die so that the fruit can be multiplied, Jew and Gentile alike. And then he goes on and describes what it's going to be like in this age. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, for my sake, you're going to find it. Let me explain to you something about loving our lives. It doesn't always look like we think. To love your life isn't just to pamper yourself. Isn't just to feed every desire, every whim, every want. But that's one aspect of loving your life. You know what another way of loving your life is? Sinking into despair and depression. Why is that loving your life? Because you're elevating it above all other things. You're saying, my mess that I'm in right now is more important. Matters more. Than anything else in the world, you're loving your life. And you're going to lose it. To lose your life means not only to give up all the wants and the desires, it means to give up all the distress and the problems. You give it all over to Him. It's His. You hand your life for whatever situation you're in, or however you're living, good, bad, or ugly, you hand it over to Him. Because I don't love my life. I love my Christ. 
And I will live for you. And Jesus lays this out so beautifully, so simply. If you, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you, if you hate your life in this world, and that doesn't mean you go around all sour. It just means, man, by comparison, my life with Jesus versus my life alone, I'll take Jesus any day of the week. And you gotta serve me, you gotta follow me, and where I am, there I'm gonna be. His presence promised. Unlike any time in history before that. If you follow me, I'm, I'm there, I'm with you. If you serve me, oh, if you serve me, my Father's gonna honor you. It's the church age. He just described what happens across this past 2,000 years in the times of the Gentiles. Verse 27, he says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Now, for what purpose, Jesus? To kick open wide the doors to the age of grace. That's why we're at this hour. That's why I came. Okay, if that's the case, Lord, then why are you so heavy hearted? I mean, if this is the beginning of the age of grace, isn't that a woohoo? Shouldn't we throw out a couple of opas? You know? I looked it up, by the way. Opa to the Greek people is just, it's like a, a woohoo. That's, that's all it is, really. It's a great big woohoo. Of course, they'll say that also if someone slips on the ice and falls down. Whoopa! <laughs> so it also means whoops. But in, in this context, I mean it happily, right? Why so heavy hearted, Lord Jesus? Isn't this the whole point of your plan? Isn't it all unfolding exactly like you wanted it to in this moment? Why are you down? Why are you, why are you feeling troubled? Jesus is the grain that must die to bear the fruit. So from His perspective, He knew what He was going to have to go through to get the gates to the age of grace open. He knew what was laying before Him in this week. And it was not what just happened in the triumphal entry. It's what's going to take place as it gets tougher, and more scrutinizing and more angry and more vengeful and more oppositional as each day ticks closer to Passover and the crucifixion. The weight of the looming cross is heavy on Jesus' shoulders. So yeah, He's troubled. But I think there's something else I would suggest that was weighing heavily on Jesus as well. Luke 21.24, he says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And I am troubled. See, I don't think Jesus was just troubled about the cross. In fact, I don't think He was troubled about the cross at all. I think he was troubled because he knew that the cross was the result of the rejection of his own people. And because of that, his own people were going to be facing the worst of the times of the Gentiles. You know, I think, hey, times of the Gentiles, age of grace, fantastic. That's that's my stuff, man. The Greeks get to go in. But for the Jewish people, there would be a horrible backlash. And we've watched it for two thousand years the times of the Gentiles Jesus saw the darkness ahead and it troubled him both in the week before him but also in the age before Israel 
and that hour had come. Now watch this, or better yet, listen. Verse 28. He cries out, Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. I love that. Boom! I have glorified it. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. He'd come into Jerusalem to thunderous applause. The applause of the people. And now we hear the thunderous approval of the Lord. Approving of His Son. Now note this, God's Word often equates God's voice with thunder. The voice of God, the booming thunderous voice. Job 37 verse 5. God thunders with His voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. And truly, when His voice boomed out in the clouds, it did thunder and people could not comprehend. It was more than their little ears could take. Revelation chapter 10, verse 3, John, in the midst of the revelation, says, He cried out with a loud voice, speaking of a great angel, As when a lion roars, and when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices, 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 voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, John writes, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Now in our Revelation study, the question comes up, What or who is the seven peals of thunder? And Scripture answers Scripture. The seven peals of thunder are just God's voice. How do you know? It's Hebrew poetic code. Back in Psalm 29. In fact, turn back to Psalm 29. It's a good one. Psalm 29. David writes... In verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And then, note this, count it with me. He says, verse 3, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. Verse 4, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and the Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. Verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in His temple everything says glory. Seven times the voice of the Lord. Seven times after David writing, the voice of God thunders. He says, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. Seven times the seven thunders. And so Scripture is right in saying, God's voice thunders. God's voice is the seven thunders. God's voice booms. And someone might say, what about Elijah? Well, Elijah's voice doesn't thunder. But, when Elijah was depressed and hiding out in the cave, 
God showed up. But not in a whirlwind, not in a flame of fire, not in thunder. You remember, in a quiet whisper, in what some translations call the still, small voice. Let me point out to you that here in Jerusalem, on this glorious day of triumph, when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, God does not answer with a whisper. He booms in the heavens. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 30, Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. Speaking, of course, of the cross, John says, verse 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus says, this was for your sake, not mine. Huh? Some just hear thunder. Others, you know, hear an angel or think maybe it's an angel. For those who hear thunder rumbling up above, it's it's a meaningless or perhaps a menacing noise. You know, that, that roll of thunder that kind of gives you the, you know, trembles. My kids love it and hate it. When you hear that thunder rolling up, it means something's coming. So some people, that's all they really heard. Just, just a noise. Others... All they hear is an angel, or think it's an angel, a messenger. Sometimes, the word for angel in the Greek, angelos, is, just means messenger. In fact, when Jesus speaks to the angels of the churches in Revelation, verse, chapters 2 and chapter 3, the seven angels of the seven churches, He speaks first to the angel to talk to the church. It's very likely He was talking to the pastors. I like that. Angel Rick. I I could get used to that. Now, I'm not angelic, but the message here, and don't miss this, the message is Jesus. When the message is Jesus, when it's all about Jesus... When it's about the glory of God, the worst response we can have to the message is, nice message, pastor. Thanks. Hey, you did a good job this morning, Rick. Great. What am I supposed to say to that? Now, once again, I'm, I know I'm just I'm causing all of you to, to shy away from saying anything positive ever at all when I, when I teach. But you know what? It's not a performance. It's the Word of God. God's voice thunders. And some people just hear thunder. God's voice booms and some people hear a nice message. It must have been an angel or something, you know. As opposed to a changed heart. You see, whether the voice of God thunders seven times or just once or whispers as He did to Elijah, there are those who hear God and there are those who do not hear God. What's the difference? 
Third thing to note, where Jesus is magnified, God is amplified. Where Jesus is magnified, God is amplified. What does Jesus say here? He says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to their best selves. Uh -uh. Well, I will draw all men to their highest potential. If I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to the right church. The Bridge Christian Fellowship. No, he says, I will draw all men unto myself. If you want to hear God, listen to Jesus. Absolutely the key. Well, well Rick, that just that sounds nice. Listen to Jesus. What does that mean? Because I want to hear God. I want to hear Him speak. I want to hear His voice. I want to hear His impression on my heart and on my life. I really do. Well, then you need to listen to Jesus. How do I do that? Well, you can start in His Word. And I mean it. Pour over the red words. By the way, while you're pouring over the red words, pour over the black words because they're His words too. And I've told you before, the more time you're in His Word, the more you are listening to His Word, the more you will hear God. Because His Word... It it tunes our ears to the frequency of the voice of God. It aligns us with God. It allows us to hear God better. The times in my life where I hear Him least are the times when I just don't have time for the Word. But the more I'm listening to Jesus, the more I hear God. By the way, in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, God's voice is audibly heard from heaven Three times. Just three. His voice is heard at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. His voice is heard the second time at the transfiguration when Jesus is on the mount. Remember Peter sees Jesus and Elijah and Moses all there on the mountain. And Peter blurts out, Oh, let's make sukkahs for all three of you. Tabernacles. Little places of honor for all three. For one from Elijah, one from Moses, one for Jesus. And God's voice booms out of the heavens. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Second time. Third and final time is right here. Father, glorify Your name. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. How does God glorify His name in the glorification? Listen of Jesus. As the Son is glorified, so the Father is glorified. As the name of the Son is glorified, so the name of the Father is glorified. I'll show you more of that in just a second here. But if you want to hear God, that's the key. At His baptism, at His transfiguration, and here in Jerusalem, as the hour had come, God calls out, God speaks audibly from heaven. And note this, all three times are in reference to His death. That is baptism. How that, how's that, how is that a reference to death? Because as Jesus died, so we too are buried with Him in baptism and we rise to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a symbol, my friends, of death. So at His baptism, voice of God. At the transfiguration, well, what were Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talking about? His crucifixion. 
His coming death. And God's voice booms from the heavens. And right here, what's going on? Jesus has just said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies and remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. His death. And God's voice booms from the heavens. I was asked at the Newcomers Fellowship, great question, why do you guys take communion every week at the bridge? You know, some take it once a month. Some take it on the church calendar once or twice a year, special events. Some rarely take it at all unless they just want to change up services. Why do you guys take it every week? Because we don't want a week to go by without recognizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that is the focus of our faith, the centerpiece. And we can teach about a lot of things and cover a lot of different areas as we go through the Scripture. And we can worship in multiple different ways. But we come down to that point every Sunday. We stop and we say, Jesus died. Jesus rose. And we believe that. And it helps us hear God. What does? Communion. The reminder of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, it helps me hear God. And Paul writes in Philippians 2.9, You know this well, for this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, so that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why does that happen? Because Jesus humbled Himself to become a man even to the point of death on a cross. I will glorify it again. Verse 34. Well, the crowd then answered him after Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And this is where you need to draw in and, and focus, listen. The crowd asks a question. They answer. They say, We have heard out of the law that the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? First of all, note this. They get that he's talking about crucifixion. Because in the context of what they just said, they said, Messiah is supposed to live forever. How can you say he's going to be lifted up? So they know he's talking about death. They know he's talking about this Son of Man, this Messiah has to die. They're getting at least that much of it. Maybe they don't fully comprehend. But they get that. So how can you say this? And then they ask the question... Point blank, clearly, who is this Son of Man? All they really needed Him to say was, Dude, it's me. You know, that's what He said to the Samaritan woman, I who speak to you am He. And Jesus could have said it in that moment and would have ignited a firestorm of religious fervor throughout Jerusalem. Guaranteed. There would have been an uprising in the city and that moment unparalleled, the people would have gone nuts. I'm here, I'm Messiah, it's me. Jesus is so wise. And He plays it so carefully and so purposefully. He never ignites the crowd. You notice that? He just doesn't. The moment the people start to go, oh, oh, it's Messiah, He's gone. Where'd He go? He's telling people, don't talk about this miracle. Don't let people know that I raised you from the dead. Keep it quiet. You know what I mean? He's always just so masterfully keeping a lid on it. Because He knows what will come. 
In that moment, who is this Son of Man? And you can almost see them all leaning forward for the answer. Who is He? Who is He? And Jesus said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Well, that's true. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. And watch what he does. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. He's right on top of it. He's walking it out. He knows what he's doing. Why this mysterious language? Why this esoteric explanation? Well, actually, it's for more reason than simply to keep a lid on their fervor. That's a good reason. And we see Jesus do it throughout His ministry. But there's another reason He's speaking this way. Follow this through. Verse, where am I? 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke. He went away and He hid Himself from them. But note this. For those hungry, for those truly seeking to know Jesus, like the Greeks, we want to see Jesus. If you really want to see Jesus, if you really want to understand, then what He said in verses 35 and 36 are interlocking pieces to the puzzle. They say, who is this Son of Man? And Jesus says, for a little while longer the light is among you. Okay? Head, head. But He doesn't come right out with it. He hands them a piece. He hands them a puzzle piece. And then He hides Himself away. Keep that in mind. Continue on. But though He had performed so many signs before them, verse 37, yet they were not believing in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. Note that. They could not believe. For Isaiah said again in verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and He hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now, John quotes Isaiah from two places here. It's not one verse in Isaiah that he's quoting. First, it's Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the first thing John quotes. But then John turns around and quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. John, by the way, by the way, those critics of Isaiah, we talked about this when we studied Isaiah, those liberal theologians, those higher critics, so-called, who come along and they say, well, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, that's probably Isaiah. But beginning with chapter 40 and and continuing, there is at least Deutero-Isaiah. Second Isaiah. Deutero-Isaiah and perhaps Trito-Isaiah. 
And quattro Isaiah. I mean, we don't know, but there's at least two Isaiahs because the second part of Isaiah is so different than the first part of Isaiah. Morons. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God, quotes from the first part of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, and the second part of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, and ascribes it all to one Isaiah. Uno Isaiah. There are not multiple Isaiahs. There's just the one. But listen, because this is huge. In Isaiah 53, verse 1, the first quote that we see from John there, Lord, who has believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The prophet there, Isaiah, speaks of the suffering servant. The arm of the Lord. And so if he stopped right there, you could say, okay, Jesus, the arm of the Lord, the suffering servant, the representation of God, the second person in the Trinity. But he doesn't stop right there, does he? He goes on and he says again, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. The question is, who right there is speaking? Go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Keep your finger in John, go back to Isaiah 6. You've got to see this with your own eyes. Isaiah chapter 6. About the middle of your Bibles. Let it fall open, you should be close. Now remember, John has quoted from Isaiah 53, that passage that so specifically deals with the crucifixion and the brutality and the suffering of the servant of the Lord. And very easy to read that and go, oh wow, that's got to be Jesus. But Isaiah 6, from which the other quote comes, go back to the beginning of it, listen to the context, Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. The Lord, in verse 1, in the Hebrew, is that tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H, the name Hashem of God. The Lord. Verse 2, Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings, with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Isaiah speaking here, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, The Y-H-W-H. Some pronounce Jehovah, others Yahweh, others Yav. We don't know the exact pronunciation of the name of God. But it's the name of God. And then reading on down, we hear verse 8, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Interesting. Us in the plural. And then I said, Here am I, send me. And He said, Go and tell this people. 
Keep on listening, do not perceive. Keep on looking, do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Quickly go back to John chapter 12 and look again at verse 41. After quoting that verse, spoken by the Lord in the temple, in the throne room, at this magnificent vision of Isaiah, verse 41, John says, these things Isaiah said because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. Him whom? Jesus. Isaiah chapter 6, my friends, is a vision of the prophet of Jesus Christ seated on the throne. Well, Rick, I thought you said it was the Lord. Exactly. John said Isaiah saw His glory and spoke of Him. So why couldn't the people get it? Many of you have asked me that as we've gone through John. We read this, we see these things, we hear what Jesus said, we see what He did, and we think, oh man, how could they miss Him? Even his own disciples missed so much the first time around until he was glorified. How could they miss? How could they not understand? Dull ears, dim eyes, hardened hearts. It's actually a condition that the Apostle Paul referred to as the partial hardening or the veil. Paul said in Romans 11.29, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The what? The times of the Gentiles. A time, a season, an age set apart where at least as a nation the hearts of Israel would be hardened to seeing. The eyes dimmed. The ears dulled. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.15, and remember Paul himself being Jewish, very Jewish, writes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now stay with me. So, why... Did God lower the veil? Why did God through Isaiah say what He said? And now John repeats it in reference to the people not believing in Jesus even for all that He had said and done and taught. Why the veil? That doesn't seem fair. Why did God harden the hearts of Israel? He didn't. He didn't. It's not the intent of the Lord. It's the effect of unbelief. So when God says this, render their their eyes dim and their ears dull and their hearts hard, He's not saying, make it so. You know, it's not John Luke Picard saying, number one, make it so. (laughs) He's saying, this is the effect. Because when Isaiah came on the scene prophesying, the people were in unbelief. So God said, render it so. This is where they're at. This is what they are doing. The effect, listen, the effect of little or no faith is dimness and dullness and hardness because without faith it is impossible to please Him. He who comes to God must believe, listen to this, 
He who comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, and that is faith. Notice that the Hebrew writer there doesn't say, He who comes to God must get it together. He who comes to God must clean up their act. He says, He who comes to God must believe that He is, and He rewards those who seek Him, and that has nothing to do with the person who's seeking Everything to do with the Lord whom we seek. And Isaiah chapter 65 verse 1 says, I permitted myself, the Lord speaking, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. So if you're ever wondering about the intent of God, He is the one who was saying to Israel back in the day, Here am I! Here am I! But eyes were dim, ears were dull, hearts were hard. And God is saying it to this nation. Here am I! Here am I! But the thunderous voice of God is drowned out by the selfishness, by the wanton desires by the arrogance of this nation. But on a positive note, when Jesus is identified, the disease is nullified. When Jesus is identified, the disease is nullified. What did He say? He said, He's blinded their eyes. Harden their hearts so they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, and be converted, which by the way is not a word that the Jewish people like so much. Because to be converted in the Crusades was convert or die. So it has a negative connotation. Even to this day in Israel, conversion has a negative connotation. That's not what the word says here. The word in the Greek is strepho, and it means turn around. Otherwise, turn around and I heal them. Turn around and I will heal you. Just turn around, the Lord is saying. When Jesus is identified, the disease is nullified. The disease is sin. The healing is forgiveness. The remedy is faith. It's our faith. Now, all that... To bring us to this point, get this, the drawing out of faith is what heals the disease. Okay, the disease is sin, forgiveness is the cure. How do we get from the sin to the cure, the disease to the cure? Faith. Faith is the remedy. Faith is the medicine. Faith is what brings about the healing. And what Jesus does throughout His ministry, and we see it so clearly here, is He's drawing out faith. What do you mean, Rick? When Jesus quoted the same passage of Isaiah, here John quotes it, right? Jesus himself quoted it. In another place, at another time in his ministry, Mark chapter 4, verse 11, listen to Jesus quote it. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. He says to his disciples. So that, while seeing, they may see and not perceive. While hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Every other time in the New Testament it's quoted, it's healed. 
in the one place where Jesus is speaking in Himself, He says, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Because forgiveness is the healing. Sin is the disease. Forgiveness is the healing. What gets me from the disease to the healing is faith. Faith is the remedy. Are we clear on that? Faith is the remedy. Wait, Jesus changes the word from healing to forgiving? Can He do that? Well, He is the Word. So He can do whatever He wants with the Word. But keeping all this in mind, let me bring it together for you. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him. For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. My friends, where human approval is gratified, the glory of Jesus is set aside. Where human approval is gratified, the glory of Jesus is set aside. These were believers. These were people in the crowd who when Jesus said what He said and walked away and hid Himself, were going, He's the One. He's Messiah. Yeah, I believe it. Why don't you tell somebody about it? Well, we couldn't do that. I can't share that faith. They'll kick me out of church. They won't let me in the synagogue. I'll be drummed out of the core, man. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ because when human approval is gratified, the glory of Jesus is set aside. And if we're seeking human approval for what we do, we will never be about the cause of Christ. Because you know well that where the Gospel is spoken, there is often disapproval. When you express your faith, I'm not going into that place tonight. Why not? Well, I don't think Jesus would want to go in here with me. So I'm not going in. Come on, lighten up. We're all Christians. We can all do this together. The approval of men sets aside Jesus. And it's one of the reasons why faith begins and then dies off in people. Because we're seeking the approval of others rather than the approval of of Jesus. Now, watch this. As Jesus works to draw out faith, He's bringing the remedy. He's bringing faith. Verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in Me does not believe in Me, but in Him who sent Me. He who sees Me sees the One who sent Me. Now watch. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in darkness. Wait a minute. Go back to verse 34. Quickly, go back. Look, what did He say? They asked the question, Who is the Son of Man? Verse 35, He says, For a little while longer, the light is among you. And He hands them a piece of the puzzle. Now on the same day, just a little bit later on, to anyone who followed Him, who sought Him out, who wanted to hear more, they hear Him now say, I have come as the light of the world. Put it together. Who's the Son of Man? The light of the world is among you. Walk while you have the light. I am the light of the world. Who is the Son of Man? The light of the world. Who is the Son of Man? Who is Messiah? It's me. Why didn't you just come out and say it, Jesus? Because He needs to draw out faith. 
And that's what He's doing here. It's marvelous. He's working to pull their faith out. To help them see Him for who He is. And and more than that, they say, who is this Son of Man? He's got to get something else clear in their heads. That He who believes in Me does not believe in Me, but in Him who sent Me. you got to get this. I'm not just the Messiah of lore. I'm not just a, a man, a human deliverer like Moses. I am very God. Yes, I'm the light of the world. Yes, I'm the Son of Man. But I am also the Son of God. And you need to understand the full package. That's where faith is going. To see Jesus for who He really is. It's marvelous. Everything Jesus said, He did to plant, He did it to cultivate, and ultimately to draw out or to harvest faith. And so verse 47, He says, If anyone hears My sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who has sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. And again, he who has seen me has seen the Father. These are the final words of Jesus to the crowd. That is the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. The very next thing in the Gospel of John, we will see Jesus in the upper room five days, four days later with the apostles on that last night, the night of his betrayal. So John stops here with the final words of Jesus to the crowd. And gang, don't miss this. John just brought everything together of his entire ministry before our eyes. All the puzzles, all the pieces of the puzzle now put into place. And we have the benefit here 2,000 years later of, of seeing the puzzle coming together. I have a puzzle app on my iPad. And I'm addicted to it because it is so relaxing. I mean, almost every night I'm like putting the puzzle together and it's so cool. I love it, you know. And I never know what the picture's going to be, you know. And I'm there beside Cheryl and we're, we're in what we call sanctuary. It's our time. Kids are asleep. Everything's quiet. Sanctuary. And I've got my puzzle app putting it together. And she always knows when I'm starting to get the picture. I go, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I get so excited. I see the picture. I know what it is. And that's what's happening here, gang. The picture's coming together. We're seeing Jesus. The Greeks said, we want to see Jesus. We just did. We're seeing Jesus as He brings faith together, pulls it all together before our very eyes. It is the most fitting and beautiful end to the teaching ministry of Jesus. And what does He say in the conclusion? He says, I'm not here to judge you What's going to judge you, listen, is my word. Not me. I'm not your judge. My word is your judge. Okay. Which word is that? The word of salvation. The word of redemption. The word of reconciliation. The word of grace. The word of eternal life. 
Paul wrote in Romans 10.16, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And sometimes He thunders. Sometimes He whispers. But it's always His Word that we need to hear. His Word will judge. How's that? His Word will judge. He offered grace. He offered salvation. He spoke of eternal life and laid it out there. The judgment comes if we accept it or reject it. His Word is the final Word. Lord Jesus, help us to take You at Your Word. Give us, Lord Jesus, ears to hear Your Word. Above all the den of noise, above all the crowd, above all the doubts, Above all those, Father, who would, who would decry the truth of the Gospel of Jesus, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this fellowship. Give us ears to hear the voice of God in our lives, thundering or whispering. And what's beautiful, Lord, is You always know when I need some thunder. And You know when I need a whisper. You know when I need a gentle hand on a shoulder. So Father, help us to hear Your Word even as we hear the Word of Christ. And to bring Your Word to a world that desperately needs to hear. Increase our faith, Father. And bring faith to a lost world, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.